Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We will not begin there, but we'll get there pretty quickly. Simply entitled this message, the front cover of your bulletin, Living in Exile with the Responsibility to Vote. I want to preach on uh, the subject of government and our role in government as Christian people. And uh, it is of concern to me that we do this well. I trust it is concern to you as well. And uh, we look to the Lord together. If I don't get through, and I don't think I will, I will bring up the second installment next week. I have another confession to make. I don't normally preach from a manuscript, but I actually wrote out what I'm to say today. There's a reason for that, because it's pretty easy when you go off script to say something that folks will hold you accountable for until you die. And I don't intend to make that mistake today, so I hope to be accountable for every word I say. One week ago, I preached from the text of Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, where Jesus is in a conversation with the religious leaders of his own day. They, those leaders, are seeking to trap Jesus in a conversation about paying taxes. His response was to ask for a coin and identify the likeness of Caesar on the face of the coin. And his response was wise. And he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God's. And a week ago, I emphasized the second half of that, render to God that which is God's. Because indeed, we have an obligation to God, don't we? And it is a profound one. It's even a financial one. Some would say, well, we're obligated to God except for our finances. To which I would say, did you hear the sermon last week? It's on this thing called the internet. You could go listen to it. I encourage you to. Today, I will address the first half of that verse, Matthew 22, 21, which is render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. You may be of the mindset that you owe the government nothing, but you did not get that notion from the Bible. In fact, you owe God everything, and you owe the government something as God's minister to you and to society. Consider Romans 13, 1 to 7, these words. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant, For your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, that's reason one, but also for the sake of conscience, that's reason two. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. 
pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So that may or may not be the text for next week's sermon. It's not the text for today. But it does frame our thinking. I would suggest to you that the Bible offers an early glimpse into the role of government in Genesis 1. That's pretty early. Genesis 1, verse 28, where Adam and Eve are told, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every other living thing that moves on the earth. In fact, much of the Bible is a testimony of the record of flawed men exercising flawed judgment, flawed government. The Tower of Babel, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, the pharaohs of Egypt, the kings of the Canaanites, the judges of Israel, the kings of Israel and Judah, first Saul, then David, then Solomon, the rule of Ahab and Jezebel. Then there's the New Testament record of the chief priest who crucified Jesus with the assistance of the corrupt politicians of Rome, including Pontius Pilate. And the Romans continued their corruption under the various emperors of the first century, Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius, Nero, and Domitian. But God intends better for and from his people. Perhaps you think it's an oversimplification to divide the world into two groups, but God does it repeatedly repeatedly there's only two kinds of people in the world the people who believe and the people who don't that's it the world has various categories some of them are political categories but the bible addresses none of that and the fact the bible says that in christ those who are afar are brought together and so in this room We have all kinds of people, but really only two. Now, we manifest ourselves in different ways, and we like our labels. The culture really likes them because, you see, they're provocative. And make no mistake, the culture is really into provocation. The culture wants to cause a fight. God's not really into fighting. He's really into peace. And the people of God should follow suit. The Bible is not intended to be a manual for unbelieving society, but it is to be instructive for those who believe. God has high expectations, even high requirements for those who believe. The first of these we shall see contained in 1 Peter chapter 1. I call it to your attention. And that is... We are to live on the earth in exile. God's people are to live on the earth in exile. You'll see this from the outset, if you will, from the jump in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect exiles, he called them. He uses that phrase again. Chapter 1, verse 17. Verse 17 to 19 and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God's people are to live on the earth as exile, and Peter addresses them accordingly. Look at chapter 2, verse 9 and following. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, perhaps the word exile is a foreign term to you, to which I would question your high school English teacher. The word exile simply means one who lives as a stranger, one who lives in a forced relocation. In this case, we are forced to live here, but this is not home. This is not our homeland. Now, in a season of strong patriotism and nationalism that we find ourselves in today, many would beg to differ. And I would suggest to you the culture is precisely accurate to say, well, this is home. Well, it is if you don't have another one. Understand, as Christian people, we have another one. We are citizens of two kingdoms, and accordingly, we are to live our lives as citizens of both, but our primary, if you will, our ultimate allegiance is to God. And what has God, our ultimate sovereign, just commanded us to do? He has commanded us to live as exiles and, as we do, to honor the government. Hmm. You won't hear that in the culture. Look at these very quickly. Verse 9, chapter 2. We are to, and there's just a series of statements here. I just want to repeat them for your clarity. We are to proclaim His excellencies. Verse 10, we are to remember our identity. We are children of God. Verse 11, we are to abstain, therefore, from fleshly passions. Verse 12, we are therefore to keep our conduct honorable. Verse 13, we are to be subject, therefore, to the Lord's institutions. And he specifically says the emperor and all of his lieutenants, known in the ancient world as governors. Pontius Pilate is a governor governing under the authority of the emperor, the Caesar in Rome. 
And Jesus was subject to Pilate. He voluntarily subjected himself, knowing that Pilate was serving the purposes of God, albeit flawed. Verse 15, we are to do good. Verse 16, we're to live as servants of God, specifically in doing good. Verse 17, we are to honor everyone and to love the brotherhood, to fear God, and to honor the emperor. I want to suggest to you that we are to live in exile as those who follow God and submit to the government. It is beyond clear that we have a responsibility to God as citizens to respond to the government. One last thing that needs to be said about Peter. Peter did not date his letter. We can't find in 1 Peter or 2 Peter the exact date, but we have a general assumption that Peter wrote basically in the 6th or 7th decade of the 1st century. So basically from 60 to 75 or so, Peter wrote. Now, if you know anything about history, particularly Roman history, do you remember who the Roman Caesar is, the emperor, during that time frame? I suspect you wouldn't because, after all, none of us are particularly passionate about 2,000-year-old civilizations. But we would do well to remember that the emperor that Peter is referring to is none other than Nero. Nero. Now, Nero is infamous because he hated Christians. And because it is suggested that Nero killed more Christians during his reign than any other Caesar. He so delighted in provoking Christians that he would take Christians and he would light them as human torches to light his dinner parties. That's not a very good man. But that is the man that Peter is referring to when he says, honor the emperor. There is a second thing that we see, and that is that God's people are to contribute to the goodness of society, and that includes the goodness of government. After all, we are commanded here to do good. Both Romans 13 and 1 Peter 1 tell us that God's purpose is for good to prevail, as we have read already, whether by government or through his people, by the government. Now, in in the United States, the government is through the people, ostensibly. And Romans 13 and 1 Peter 1 tells us that we have a responsibility to influence society for good. And ultimately, our profound, or if you will, our best influence is through good government. We want good government. Let me give you an illustration of this in the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. For those of you who have forgotten, Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. The first telling occurs in Exodus with one generation that leaves Egypt. But they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and their children are now adults, 
and their parents are now dead and buried in the desert. So Moses tells them, the kids, what he told their parents. So Exodus and Deuteronomy read as mirror images of each other somewhat. But Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law that he tells first in Exodus. So Exodus and Deuteronomy, very similar. So here he is talking to the kids in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And I want you to note what he says, verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? They're about to go into the promised land. So we haven't had the Jericho experience. That's going to happen Joshua 1 at the end of Deuteronomy, but it's about to happen. He's preparing Israel for Jericho, going into the promised land. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, and the earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. He's not talking about a physical circumcision here. He's talking about the spiritual circumcision. Circumcise your heart. Contend with the fact that inside you is where the battle rages, the battle for good and evil, the battle for truth and untruth against falsehood, the battle for belief and unbelief. That is not external to you, friend. It is internal. We have met the enemy, and he is us. It is our own heart, our own wickedness, and our own desire to be our own king and our own sovereign and not willing to submit to God. And so Moses rebukes Israel yet again, circumcise the foreskin of your own heart. It's your job. It's your responsibility. It's your duty. It's your obligation. And you'll be judged even as your fathers were judged and they lie dead in the wilderness. You'll be judged if you fail to deal rightly with God. So he continues, verse 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner. That's the stranger in your land, the, the man from a different country. He loves him. In other words, God is not the least bit patriotic or nationalistic. giving him food and clothing. Love the stranger, the sojourner. Therefore, for you were strangers, sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you see his rationale? Do you know why God loves the sojourner? Because his own people were sojourners. In other words, his own people have a long history of living in exile. And we still are living in exile. Verse 19, 
rather verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, he is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. God's people are to contribute to the goodness of society, and that includes the goodness of government. We live as his ambassadors. We live as his representatives. We live as those who are accountable to God. There is a third thing, and that is that the Lord loves righteousness and justice. This is the ethical stewardship of our faith. What does it mean to be a believer? Well, it means to believe in God and to love your neighbor as yourself. I would suggest to you, none of us have any problem loving ourselves. We are selfish to the bone. We're selfish in our very person. And God says we are to love others with just that much devotion. Finding out what that looks like, feels like, smells like, acts like, is a different matter altogether. There is much argument about what constitutes living a loving life, living as those committed to the things that God is committed to, righteousness, justice, and those are the things God is committed to. We see this famously restated. It's stated here in Deuteronomy 10, God loves, God loves uh, justice. He executes, verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In other words, God is generous. God is caring. God is benevolent. God is merciful. God is long-suffering in his mercy. God is compassionate. Where would we be if God were not? Can't help but parenthetically, if you can permit me to make an application that's, that's just personal in my own life, uh, verse 22 of Deuteronomy 10, he says, your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons. Now the Lord God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. There, there is no evidence of the United States in the Bible, Old or New Testament. The United States is not there. If preachers tell you the United States is in the Bible, they are lying to you. But this is not unusual, is it? For us to recognize that God is in the business of nation building. That our own nation is evidence. Now this is not our story, but our story is not dissimilar from this. This story is you went down to Egypt 70 and you came back and now you're as numerous as stars. Look at our own nation. A few pilgrims here and a few pilgrims there and a few missionaries here and a few ambassadors from Spain there and pretty soon you've got a nation. And where are we today? More than 330 million. I haven't counted the stars, but that sounds like a round number. And who are we to say that somehow that's because we're smart, because we're genius, or because we're more wise than other peoples of the earth? That's crazy. It's not true. The Lord has made us prosperous. The Lord has done this. It seemed wise to God for these last 250 years for God to do this. But we too are flawed. 
Even as the governments of the Bible were flawed, we too are flawed. We are led by flawed leaders. Even the church, led by flawed leaders. There is none perfect. There is none without mistake. There is none who's not guilty. We all are guilty. And we acknowledge this before God and we cry out to him, give us mercy in the midst of our guilt. Give us mercy, forgive us, restore us, help us. Make us wise when we are not. Make us strong when we are weak. Make us smart when we are not smart. Give us grace so that our lives might reflect the glory of God and the goodness of God. Help us, God, because we are needy. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, this became the, if you will, the motto of the civil rights movement in the United States. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice and to love kindness. Why should God require that of his people? Because that is the nature of the God we serve. God wants us to be like him, to do justice, to love kindness. This is the nature of our God, and this is to be be the nature of our people. So the Bible says nothing then about people choosing their own government, or virtually nothing. Yet in the province of God for these many centuries, two and a half centuries, God ordained a government in the United States that gives the privilege of voting to the people. So while voting is not a command, it is clearly a responsibility. And we can make the case, can you not, that in order for us to affect good in the nation, to promote and provoke the heart of God in the nation, we must pay attention to elections. We must pay attention to elections. And God has ordained that in our nation we would have a say. We would have a part. So under God, we are to be his instruments that shape and build the government. That is not necessarily true across the world, and it is not true at all in the Bible. The people didn't shape their rulers, pick their rulers. God picked them, or they picked themselves via anarchy and insurrection. Yet God has ordained that we get to pick. So it is not a command to vote. There's nothing of the sort in the Bible. We're not sinning by not voting. Let's be clear on that. It is not a sin to not vote. But it is a part of our responsibility. It is a part of us seeking to be salt and light in a dark world. Not everyone agrees on the proper strategy for being salt and light. But we know that our homeland is not here. We are exiles. But simply because we are exiles does not somehow release us from the responsibility that we are to, to borrow a phrase not in the Bible, bloom where we're planted. God has ordained that we live here. And that as such, on the earth, we are to represent Him in all that we do. Not just every four years in some election or every two years or every year. Could you imagine what would be hell on earth 
It would be a presidential election every year. My goodness. Please, God. One day, we will not be exiles. One day, we will be home. But until we are home, we are to conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord who made heaven and earth and who made us and who made this nation and every other nation. Until we're home. We have a responsibility to live unto God, for God, for the glory of God. I want to urge you as you contemplate your responsibilities to hold on loosely to this life. I exhort you as your pastor, do not hold on tightly to this life. Because one day you shall be set free. Live as those who have liberty to let this life go and goods and kindred also. Hold on loosely to this life. But holding on loosely does not mean that you don't hold on at all. We're not to quit. Until we die, God has a purpose. You may not see it. You may not know it. It may not be any more significant than one little thing. Who knows? In the wisdom of God, God's never told me his purpose in a grand way for my life. I know that my immediate purpose is to do good and love mercy. So if an opportunity to do good presents itself in the next five minutes, I better jump on it. Because that is the will of God for me. And so to you, I say to you, because we are the children of God living as exiles in this land, we are to go and do the will of God. To do good, to act justly, and to love mercy. And to represent God in every avenue of our life, including in elections. We're to vote according to the will of God, the revealed will of God, and our own conscience. Because God does not reveal his will explicitly as regards candidates, we are left with our conscience. But it is a conscience that is informed by the word of God, right? We're the people of God. We know our Father. We know his heart. We know his affections. We know what he believes in, what he subscribes to, and what he wants for his children. That would be me and you. So we are not to just willy-nilly go and do whatever we do as if our Father doesn't care about us. Our Father does care about us, and He cares about everything we do, including elections. Because God wants us to love Him and to love our neighbor and to do justice and to act and walk humbly before God and our fellow man, to love mercy. Being salt and light is not that difficult. If we don't try to make it bigger than it is, or more impressive than it is, I'm not responsible for the, if you will, the the macro purposes of God. 
But I am responsible for the micro, the super micro purposes of God found in my own life. I am responsible for those. No one can make me disobey my God. No one. You say, well, the government can. (laughs) Well, you're not reading the Bible very closely, friend. The government can throw you in a lion's den or a furnace or stone you or crucify you or throw you in a prison or wrap a bunch of chains around you and tie a rock to it and throw you in a river in the Netherlands as he did to the Anabaptists 400 years ago. The government can take everything you have but they can never force you to disobey your God so let us not be guilty of disobeying our God today or any day whether it's an election season or not let us be guilty of saying That when Christ came into our hearts, he gave us life. And this life is eternal. And we will not fear the one who can kill the body. But rather we'll fear the one who can abandon the soul to hell. We will be faithful to our God. And faithful to living for our God. And representing our God and serving the purposes of our God in doing good and loving justice and loving mercy. And as God gives us grace, we trust that God will help us to vote as an aspect, as, as it were, a, a check mark, no pun intended, of the fact that we have done good. It is a good thing to act in a way that promotes goodness and promotes good government. Because until we die and fly away, we will live under the minister of God known as government. Then we will fly away and we will live without complexity. Do we serve God? Or do we serve man? One day, that won't be a thing. It'll just be God. But until then, let us be faithful to serve God and pay attention to the doing of good, including on election day. May God give us grace to live for Christ and to serve him. Pray with me. As I pray this morning, I encourage you to join with me in praying for our nation. We live in a time of perhaps unparalleled acrimony, unparalleled polarization. I say perhaps because I haven't lived for 250 years of this nation's history, neither has any other so-called pundit. But I do know that God looks upon the affairs of men 
and he notes their affections for him. So let us cry to God together. Oh God, we pray. We pray for the will of God in this nation. We pray for the church of God to rise up, not to take up swords and shields, but rather to take up the word of God and to live humbly, righteously, and soberly in this present age and to walk as people of God, to live as people of God, pursuing good things and good government included. We pray, Father, that you would turn us away. Turn us away, O oh God, from the ways of the world, the thinking of the world, the affections of the world, the criteria of the world, and help us to see as you see and do as you do. Give us that which we cannot give ourselves. Bring us to our knees and show us our dependence upon you. We pray for your your supreme wisdom to come and help us. God, may the church, may the people of our church sense and follow your hand. We want nothing more than to please you. We want nothing more than to obey you. We want nothing more than to do the will of God. So we cry out to you, oh God, come and help us. We are weak. Rebuke us where we have gone astray and bring us home. Help us to indeed help us to indeed, Father, circumcise the, our very hearts. We know that we cannot do that, only you by your spirit. So we pray, Father, you would help us. Please, Lord, help us. As your Holy Spirit lives within us, Lord, help us to be faithful and to follow you, to do your will, and to honor you in all things. And Lord, we pray today again for the advance of good government, a government that pleases God. Help us, Father, to do what we should in accomplishing the same. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.